Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, we'll make sure you get one. Galatians chapter 3. We want to welcome our guests this morning, and uh, we thank you for coming to worship with us. We're so grateful for that. Also, those who are joining us online, it's, a, it's an honor to be able to worship with you through technology. Isn't that not cool or what? It's awesome to be able to do that. By the way, if you are interested in um, the ask me, asking for a friend and you can't make it on Thursday nights, we are streaming it, so you can check it out. It will also be available on our website through iTunes, just like everything else is. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can check it out later. It was a very interesting topic um, this last week, and uh, um, it, was, it was a great study for me. Is there sin in heaven? So I'm not going to talk about it, but you can check it out if you want and uh, how, how that all works. And uh, so Galatians chapter 3 this morning, we are in our uh, sixth or fourth, fifth, fifth sermon on the Unshackled series and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 3, which is also a division in the book. We talked about it last week, that Paul moves from uh, defending his own personal, um, uh, thank you so much, his own personal calling and the gospel that he preaches to moving to defending the doctrine of justification, how one is justified. And if you missed the definition of what justification means or justified or the word justify, it literally means to be made righteous. To be made righteous. Some have explained it as, as to say it's just as if you had never sinned. You know what that means? It means you appear perfect before the Father. Is that amazing? Because I know me. I don't know you, but I know me, and I do know that you are like me, and I know that I'm not perfect. And yet, because what Jesus Christ is perfect we get what is called imputed righteousness. We get his righteousness. He traded his perfection for your sin. Is that amazing? Man, that, that should blow your mind every time you think about it because Jesus Christ literally took your place. He paid the price for you. And so as you appear before the Father now, you appear blameless before him. That is why, you know, our, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. God sees you as he sees his son. And you know what he thinks about his son? He is well-pleased in his son. So he is well-pleased in you. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I, I don't know what will. Because that is grace, folks, getting what you don't deserve. And God is an incredible God of grace. And he wants us to understand that this morning. We have painted, many have painted the picture of God as being this impersonal dictator on, um, you know, on the throne that wants nothing more than to catch you doing something wrong. That is not the God of the Bible, folks. And, and in fact, let me explain it a little bit further. That is not the God of the Old Testament, which some people like to de delineate, want to, want to make a, a distinction that, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament was this way. No, the God, God, the Bible says, never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God of grace in the New Testament, is the same God of grace in the Old Testament. He is relating to the world in different ways. And, you know, his ways are not our ways, so we don't get, get that. But at the end of the day, he does not change. He is the same. If he's a gracious God to you today, then he's always been a gracious God because he does not change. What an amazing thing that we have. And so Paul, uh, you know, answering the, the dispute of, these Judaizers who have come into the church in Galatia, these several churches, it's a, it's a region, Galatia's a region, so there's multiple churches there, and he is defending the idea that justification comes, you know the phrase, by grace alone, through faith alone, in what? Christ alone. That's what he's defending. Because the Judaizers are saying, no, no, it, it comes by works of the law plus Jesus which is no gospel at all, as we've talked about. These Judaizers are making a mess of the doctrine of justification, and Paul is trying to bring these believers back to true north. And maybe you're here this morning, and you need to be brought back to true north, because let me tell you something. As I said last week, there is a legalist in all of us. There is, there is this 
personality within us, there is the flesh that wants to work its way to heaven. We want to do something. We don't want to just sit idle. But, but let me tell you something. Justification is passive. It's passive. You do nothing to gain it except for believe in what Christ has done. Jesus did all the work. You were passive in it. And Paul wants us to understand that. He is trying to help these believers in Galatia understand that. Faith in Christ is the only way to be made righteous. If you missed last week, you can pick it up on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Facebook, whatever. But as Paul, we move into chapter 3 again, um, the, the second part of chapter 3, what we find is a very thorough explanation of the promise given uh, to Abraham and how the law works within the promises to give us an eternal inheritance. Paul does this by, um, you know, he contrasts these two pillars of the faith, Abraham and Moses, and how the covenants that were made to them relate to each other. And so with that said, why don't you stand and we're going to read a portion of our text this morning, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Here's what the Word of God says. To give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant with no... No one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I meant. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that it directs and leads and guides and trains and corrects us. By the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, we ask you to help our hearts understand that you have glorious promises that were made to Abraham that are transferred through Christ to us. Paul says it's this glorious inheritance, the glorious riches that await those who believe in Christ. So would you help us this morning, God, to understand that, that not only do we gain salvation, which is reconciliation to you, forgiveness, but we also have an inheritance. And we thank you for it, Lord. We pray your name be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you guys have secretly wished that someone would knock on your door and say that you were left some inheritance from somebody that you didn't know? Anybody? Anybody spent that money like 20 times? You know, you're just sitting there daydreaming. You're thinking, man, I would do this and this and this and this. Now, let's be real for a second. How many of you guys have considered, you know, giving that Nigerian person your bank account that called you up and said, I will give you, I have $50 million that I've inherited and I've got to move it out of Nigeria today because the government's going to take it. You know, be real. You probably have done, I'm thinking, man, I should do that. <laughs> That's not real. But, but listen, these things do happen. These things literally do happen. Let me give you a couple examples. In 2007, a wealthy Portuguese aristocrat left his fortune to 70 strangers that he randomly selected out of the phone book. No joke. That is for real. Random selection. In 1936, the successful Canadian lawyer and high-risk high investor and practical jokester Charles Vance Millar died. In his will, he stipulated that after 10 years from his death, the executor was to determine what woman gave birth to the most children in that period, and they were to receive his inheritance. If it was a tie, the inheritance was to be split. It just so happened that four women had each given birth to nine children during that 10-year period of time, and they each received $187,000 uh, out of his inheritance. That's a lot of money in 1936. 
But man, that's a lot of kids in 10 years. I'm thinking, I mean, you know, how many kids have you, how many kids have you had in diapers all at once? Nine in 10 year period. That's a lot of kids in diapers. That's, I'm saying they earned it. I'm just saying, you know, all the diapers they had to change and everything. But, but I want to let you in on a little secret. There is an inheritance that awaits you. And perhaps you've not thought about it. Of course, we think about heaven and we think about the gloriousness of heaven and, and all these kinds of things. But, but what we must understand is that we are heirs, which means we have an inheritance when we go to heaven. There's, there are the glorious riches of Christ that await you and I who believe in him. There is an inheritance. There has been a knock at the door. And if you were willing to receive Christ into your life, then you have been given this glorious inheritance. It's done. It's a done deal. You're, just, you're, you're waiting for that moment in time in which that inheritance check shows up. And it will happen the day that you breathe your last breath in the flesh. And what a glorious inheritance it will be. I want to talk to you this morning about the means of our inheritance. About the means of our inheritance. How we obtain this glorious inheritance. That's what Paul is speaking about in chapter 3, beginning in verse 15 through verse 29. If you're taking notes, the first thing that we encounter is the last will and testament of our inheritance. Look at verse 15. It says, To him, uh, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll recall that Paul just finished saying in, in uh, verse 13, he said this, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So then in Christ, listen, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we may, might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, what Paul was saying there was that the law can only bring one thing, a curse. It cannot bring life. But Jesus traded that curse for you. He took the curse upon the tree. He hung on the tree for you so that you could be relieved of the curse of the law. He didn't remove the law. He paid the price for you. It's a very different thing to say that God removed the law from you, which would be... Um, you know, it, not, it wouldn't have been paid. God wouldn't have paid for it. But Jesus, he did pay for it, in fact. He paid for all your sin. I was going to say, he, he didn't offer you immunity. He offered you a full pardon. Your sins are forgiven, completely and totally clear. That's what Jesus did for you. He did not remove the law, but he satisfied it for you. Uh, you know, in 1 John, it says that he is our propitiation. That word literally means our satisfaction. He satisfied the law for you and I. He satisfied that curse. Paul is telling us that there is no life in the law. There is no life in the law. Hence, he wrote to the believers in Corinth, the letter kills. He was speaking about the law. The letter of the law kills. It has no capacity to save, only condemn. However, the Lord did implement the law for a reason. He has a very specific reason. And we'll get to that in a second. But what we have to understand is that the law does not replace the promise that God made to Abraham. It will not replace it. There is a relationship that they have. Paul asks this question, because the law came after the promise, does that mean that God nullified the promise? Because the law came 430 years afterward, after the law, he uses that, that, that time frame, 430 years, but actually from the time that Abraham lived, the promise was given, 
It was 654 years until the law came. Well, why does it say 430? Just to kind of give you the math there. It is referring to the time period in which God reminded Jacob of the promise that he had given Abraham and the period of time that the children of Israel would be in Egypt under slavery. It was that 430 years that he is referring to. From that point on, then the law came. God reminded Jacob of the promise of Abraham. In 430 years, the law came. So does that mean because the law came afterward that the promise is null and void? Absolutely not. Paul says, let me use an, a, a normal example. Let me use a human example. If you sign an agreement with somebody, you know, as Dan has just done or somebody's just done here, and, you know, could you imagine how ridiculous it would be if you signed the agreement and then a couple days later they called up and go, yeah, yeah, nah, I'm not doing that. Uh-uh. I'm not going to keep my terms to the agreement. Well, hold a second. Hold on a second. You, you signed this. You said you would do it. Your name is right here. Yeah, but I don't want to do it no more. I just don't want to do that. Uh, you're going to go to court. You're going to lose. Why? Because the agreement is set in stone. You signed it. Now, unfortunately, we live in a, a, a society where there's many, many loopholes. But in God's society, there are no loopholes. There are no loopholes as it relates to these covenants. You either are in them or you're not. There is no way out of them once you are under them. And so Paul is trying to help us understand that even in a human agreement like that, you can't change it. You think God is going to change his agreement, his covenant, his covenant. That The word covenant means it's a legal agreement that once has been ratified and, or made effective that it cannot be changed. You know how they ratified a covenant back in this day? through sacrifice. They would find a valley. They would take animals. They would split them in half, long way. They would put one side of the animal on this side of the valley, one side on the other side. The blood would flow to the middle. And then the two parties, which are trying to make the agreement, would then pass through the blood, and that would be uh, considered, the, the agreement would be considered signed. That would be, it, it's ratified. It is in place. Now, you are required to fulfill those obligations, whatever they might be. If you didn't, you would end up like those animals. That was the point. It was solidified. It was ratified in the blood. Now, what you have to understand about this particular covenant that was made with Abraham is that it was, rat it was ratified by God himself. What do I mean? Well, Abraham <laughs> was asleep when it happened. In fact, God said, and, and you can pick it up and read about it in Genesis chapter 15, but Abraham, God told Abraham to take a heifer, to take a female goat, to take a, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon and cut them in half, lay them on opposite sides of each other, and then they would make this covenant. But, but it started to become evening, and Abraham just got tired. You know, he fell asleep. It happens when you're praying, you know. Oh, Lord, how great. <laughs> you know, Abraham fell asleep. But that was planned. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. Why? Because the covenant that God was about to make with Abraham was unconditional. The, 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 the requirements of Abraham were none. He had no requirements as it relates to this covenant. God told him earlier in chapter 15, I am going to bless you. I promise you that you will have offspring as great as the, as the stars in the sky. He also promised him as great as the sands and the seas. The promise that he also gave was that he would give them a land to inherit, and they would have it. Listen, this is a long time, but he would give it to them forever, forever. And so, you know, as this promise was given, God made the promise, and it required nothing of Abraham. God ratified that covenant himself. So it's not based on Abraham. It's based 100% on God. That's why it's called unconditional. Now, the law, on the other hand, it was given through angels to Moses, to Israel, and it was considered conditional. If you do this, then I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. If you follow my rules and obey my commandments, I will bless you. But if you don't, you will be what? Cursed. Because it's a conditional covenant. God gave Moses a completely different type of promise. The question then remains is, so what trumps what? Does the covenant of Moses trump 
the covenant of, of Abraham? No, it can't. Why? Because God gave his word to Abraham. You know, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where, you know, not so much now, but early on in my Christian walk where I wondered about the promises of God. Are they real? Are they legit? Will they really, really come, really come, they come, to, come to pass? You know, is this just some far-fetched thinking of that I'm following after? Or is this legit? Can I really trust his word? Don't act like you haven't had those thoughts before. You have, I know. Because we're all human beings. We doubt. But you know what I found is that God's word is true all the time. Not 99% of the time, 100% of the time. Amen? Yeah. It is true 100% of the time. And so there becomes now this question of, well, how do these two things work together? What is the point of one? You know, how do, how do they work together then? I, I, I don't understand. Paul tells us that this covenant that came by the law does not make the promise void. And he goes on to tell us that if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. You know what that means? God lies. God lies. What does the Bible say? God cannot what? Lie. So now you have to either disbelieve the Bible or disbelieve your own feelings. You have to ask yourself, just because you can't comprehend the two, Paul is saying is, you can't jump to conclusions and automatically make God a liar. Don't do that. If anybody's a liar, point the finger at yourself. Lord, help me to understand the lie. I don't want to follow the lie, whatever it is, the, my, the feelings that I'm trying to follow, or whatever it is. Lord, I want to, believe, I want to follow the truth. Isn't that what Paul said? The problem was in Romans chapter 1, people traded the truth for a lie. And so we have to allow the scriptures to confront us with the truth. And Paul is going to illustrate why the promises made to Abraham are not nullified by the law. In fact, they are enhanced. In fact, it opens up a door for many more to believe. Here's what he says, moving on in, in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, not an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What, what he just got done saying was that the promises of Abraham are transferred to a seed, not seeds. We know the seed, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is who? Jesus. Paul just said the seed is Jesus. So what he's saying is that the, the way to the promises of God have been made through, through um, Jesus Christ. So then what's the point of the law? It's a good question. It's something that we probably have all asked ourselves. But he tells us right here, fortunately, through the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us that the law was brought, was added because of transgressions. It was brought as a result of transgressions. There's a twofold purpose for the law in the reality as it relates to transgressions. Number one, it helps us to understand what God's standard is. It's a revealer of what righteousness, it, it, it's a revealer of our, number one of our sin, and it's also a definer of what righteousness is, right? So if we don't know what we're shooting for, if we have no idea where the bar is, how can we know whether we're meeting it or not? So what God says is, okay, let me show you the bar. The bar is right here, the law. You have to meet this in order to be righteous in my eyes. He defines what righteousness is. But then as people begin to walk by the law, they realize like, whoa, I'm not even coming close to the bar. That's the point. The point is the bar's too high to come close to. So then what it does is it reveals, at the very same time it is setting the bar, it's also revealing our inability to meet it. It is a light that shines into our heart that shows us that we, have, that we are incapable of living to God's standard. That is the point of law. It was for the sake of transgression, that we would understand it, that we would understand 
transgression. What, what I find interesting, though, don't you, is that when we are confronted with some sort of rule, what happens? We want to break it immediately. That's our initial inclination is to do exactly what we were told not to do, right? Oh, I'm the only one. I forgot. Yeah. No. You know what Paul says about the law? Here's what he said. That, that's the exact, that's one of the things it does. Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Our hearts are rebellious. Our flesh wants to do the opposite of what we're told to do. That's the nature of sin, to miss the mark, to do exactly. And the law exposes our sin. It's not a means to an end, though. It's simply a catalyst to point us to the seed because that's what he said. It was added to transgressions, listen, until, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That word offspring is still the word seed. Speaking of Jesus, until Christ came, the law was meant to shine into our hearts and show us that we are condemned, that there is no hope to meet God's standard. That is the point of it. And it arouses sin within us. But when Jesus came, what happened? He fulfilled the law for us. 100%. He told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 18, he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. When was it accomplished? Upon the cross, when Jesus Christ died, he was laid in the tomb and he rose again from the dead. The law was satisfied 100% for anyone who would believe in Christ. He goes on to make this point that the law is inferior to the promise because of the type of covenant it has. The, the covenant of Abraham through the promise was unconditional. It was made by God alone, single party, 100% dependent upon him. But again, through, the law came through intermediaries, making it inferior, making it inferior to, because God is one. There is no intermediary between him. He brings his grace, and you either get it or you don't. You, you have that opportunity to receive Christ or reject him. That's your deal. But God will be faithful to do what he said he would do, and he will give you an opportunity. And he has made a way for you. So when, when, when people stand before the Lord one day, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you know, they're going to try and make the excuse of, well, what do you mean? I never got the chance. No, you did. You did have the chance. You just chose to follow the lie rather than receive the truth. That will be the, God will not be accountable to anyone for not, uh, you know, inheriting the kingdom of God. It will be 100% upon man, 100%. He's done what he can do. He sent his son. He, he sent the gospel. He sent you and I into the world to tell people about Jesus Christ. And he has made, given you every opportunity, and he will not be accountable for those who reject the gospel. The law is inferior to the promises. However, it does not make it contrary to the promises. Look at verse 21. The, is the law then contrary to the promises? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? Believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Paul uh, poses this next question about how the law interacts with the promises. It is literally, is it contrary? Is it opposite of the promises of God? Paul responds emphatically, certainly not. That could be translated, may it not be. Why? Because that would be counterproductive for God. That would be counterproductive. God doesn't work against himself. There would also be no point in Jesus coming for you and I if, 
if we could by some way be made right through the law. But we couldn't. And that's why Jesus came. Paul is telling us that, again, the, the law condemns us. It brings the curse. The, the, the scripture, he says, the scripture, he's pointing to the Bible, he's speaking, refer, referring to the law here, it primarily imprisons, it, 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 it imprisons everything under sin. The whole world is fallen, according to the scripture. The whole world. What is the scripture? It's God's word. He said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His word is true. Everything in the world is condemned. Because all are imprisoned by sin. I love that word imprisoned there. It literally means locked up securely. To enclose on all sides with no way of escape. Literally, the law put us in a cell on death row. We had no hope. We, we had no hope to justify ourselves through the works of the law. That was the point. Paul asks a question to himself in Romans chapter 7. And he says, what then shall we say in verse 7? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For it would not have, for I would have not known that it was what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the command, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. We would not have known the sin that was within us had God not brought the law to us. It literally is an x-ray machine to show you what's inside. The problem is not with the x-ray machine. You can't blame the x-ray machine because there's something inside. Right? The x-ray machine is meant to expose what's inside so that the, the, the physician can do something about it, right? That is the point of the law. It is meant to expose what is internal so that the great physician can do heart surgery on you and remove that curse. That is the point. That is what Paul is trying to help us understand. And you will never, ever come to that conclusion until you are faced with the understanding of God's law and what he has what, what his standard is for you. I like what MacArthur said. He said, not until a person smashes himself against the demands of the law and the accusations of conscience does he recognize his helplessness and see his need for a savior. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned him and sentenced him to death will he be driven to despair in himself and turn to Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, without the law, if you had never been confronted uh, with the law in some way, shape, or form, you would never, ever see a reason to come to Christ. You would never know it. That's why we use the law. <laughs> That's why we help people to understand that they're a sinner. You know, I, I do appreciate the, uh, the way of the masters and the, the specific way that, of evangelism where they, they, they go out and they, they take the Ten Commandments to people. They give them the, the commandment test. Oh, you're a good person. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever lied? Yeah. Okay, well, that's cool. That's just one of the ten. Let, let's try another one. You ever stole anything? Uh, yeah. Okay, well, that's two. You know, like two, out of eight, two out of ten, I'm not sure, 80%, maybe it's passing. Oh, let's just try one more thing. You ever looked at a woman with lust in your eyes or a man with lust in your eyes? Well, I'm not saying. Well, yeah. Guess what? Three out of ten. And I could just continue to go on if you'd like. The point is you're not a good person because good in the definition of God means perfect. Good in the definition of God means perfect, and you're not perfect. So guess what? You have a problem. You have a problem. You've violated God's standard, his rules. And the Bible says for the wages of sin, when you miss the mark on those three things that we just talked about, the Bible says that the wages for that is death. You're condemned to die. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. You are condemned to that. Well, la, 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 you know, and you can argue all day long, but that's what the Bible says. It's the truth. And God brought the x-ray machine in to, to expose that to us so that we understood that, so that people understood that. The law could never bring reconciliation. It can only 
reveal what's inside so that we can deal with it, so that, God, so that we can receive the grace of God, that he can give us what we don't deserve. That's why Christ came. Jesus came to be, become our ransom so that we could be justified by faith. He is the promise given through Abraham that we obtain the promise by believing in him. He's the promise of, of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the seed of the enemy. He would crush him. And that's when Jesus came. That's exactly what he did. Listen, before Jesus came and people were living by the law, they were helpless. There was no hope. And yet, somehow, <laughs> the, 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 the Pharisees and these were trying to, to, to live, to fool themselves into thinking that they were able to stand before God justified when they could not. It's a lie. Do not lie to yourself. God loves you too much to lie to, lie to you, by the way. He will expose the truth. He will tell you what's really going on in your heart because he cares for you. He loves you. That's what love does. Love doesn't pretend that's that, that, you know, when you're in harm's way, that nothing's wrong. Love does not pretend that. If I see my kids going down a, a, a dark path, or if I see, you know, someone that I know going down a dark road, I'm going to say something because I care about them, because I love them, because that's what love does. And let me tell you something. We need as Christians to stop this, you know, well, that's their walk. You know, I, we're not the Holy Spirit. Don't misunderstand me, but do not be afraid to say, hey, what are you doing? You know, hey, we're, we're supposed to be account accountable to each other. What does the Bible say? Confess your sins to yourself. Confess your sins one to another. Why? Because we need the accountability, right? God put people in your life for that reason, and God put you in that person's life for that reason. So don't be afraid to say something. Hey, what's going on? Now, again, be, be like the Lord is. He is gentle. He, his point, the point in which his confrontation with us is solely for the purpose of reconciliation. And if the person does not want to reconcile, he will let it be. Don't you dare try and force it. Don't you dare force it. Then you're taking it upon yourself to go beyond what God asked you to do. He simply asked you to step in and say be his voice box in that moment. That's, that's, that's all you're called to do. But do it for love's sake. And do it in love. So what is the ultimate purpose of the law then? Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, you know this verse. You know probably what this verse means. It, you know, the idea that the law is a guardian. It's a tutor. It's, it's, it's meant to train us. It helps us to understand. The, the, the concept of what he's talking about here is the idea is um, back in the, the, these days, the Romans, the Greeks, they would all have slaves which were um, entrusted the children of the house, right? So, the master of the house would say, here's my children. Basically, they would hire a nanny. They would, they would, well, they would own them, but they, were, you know, they would own these people, and they would say, hey, your responsibility is to train my children. Now, these people were educated. They were, they were, uh, very, they were disciplinaries. You know? They were people that would take very seriously their calling because these children are, are their responsibility. And so what the custodian would do or the tutor or the guardian, what they would do is they would take the kid to school. They would make sure that they, they would help them with their homework. They would discipline them when they're bad. They would be their friend. They would, they, would, they would essentially be there. They would be their helper until a point in time. It, wasn't, it was never permanent. It was temporary. And it was until that child would become an adult. And what's interesting at that point is the roles would change. Then the adult child would now be, would be the governing authority over the custodian, over the guardian, over the tutor. What is Paul saying? What, what he's saying is that when we become an adult, when we put on Christ, that idea there, when a, person, when a, when a male became a, an adult in that culture, they would take off childish clothes and they would be given a robe, right? The idea that we put on Christ, we take off our 
soiled garments and we put on that robe of righteousness. That's the picture. And what he's, what he's, what he's helping us understand is that now your role changes. The law, has, you have a different relationship with the law now. Not that the law is bad, not that it is, um, you know, uh, sin itself or anything like that, but it has accomplished its purpose. It is no longer the authority of your life. Christ is. Because you've put on Christ. The roles have changed. However, those who would be under a custodian or a guardian or whatever, they wouldn't, they wouldn't disrespect the guardian, the tutor. Like I see a lot of Christians do. Oh, we're not under the law no more. You know, we could do whatever we want. That's not, that's not the point at all, actually. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. Last time I checked, I'm a slave to Christ. Last time I checked, I signed my rights over and I've been crucified. Right? You don't forget what the law taught you. You don't have to live by the law in terms of legalistic manner but the law is good. It is holy, Paul says in Romans 7. It's a good thing. God gave it as a means to expose, but it is still his standard. Are we called to live to that? No. We put on Christ now. He satisfied the requirements of the law. We're not called to live by the law, but we are, listen, called to obey the word of God. We are called to obey the word of God. Jesus said, if you don't obey me, then you're not of me. So this concept that, you know, we're not lawless people to do whatever we want because we're under grace. No, no, that's not how that works. It's not how that works at all. We are saved by grace to live free and follow Christ freely and to follow the Spirit of God. He put His Spirit in us. He put the power of God in us for, to give us the ability to obey the Word of God so that we can uh, you know, continue to shine brightly for him so that we can be the light of the world that he called us to. We are not lawless, but we are not condemned by the law either because Christ satisfied. Does that make sense? So, so he goes on here and he tells us the law was meant to show us that we're sinners, right? We've been crucified. Paul says, in the life that I now live in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's by faith who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't live by the law. We live by faith. Paul said in Romans 6.14, we don't live by the law. We live by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hopefully you guys will start finishing that for me. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So don't misunderstand that God's moral standards have never changed. They're the same forever. He goes on here. So what is the means of our inheritance? How we, we become heirs by putting on Christ, right? We, we, we come to Christ. He seals us with the Spirit. We are now in Him. He is, we, we have put Him on. And, and, and so what is, the, what is the means of our inheritance? He goes on in verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is nor, uh, no male and female, for you are, are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He says that we, the means of our inheritance is what? Baptism? No. That's not the means of our inheritance. Baptism is, isn't how we are saved. It's not the means of our inheritance. Why does he use the word baptism there? What does the word baptism mean? It means immersed, to be immersed. Immersed in what? What is he talking about here? Immersed in water? No, immersed in who? Jesus Christ. You've been immersed in Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, fortunately for us, the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, exactly what that baptism means for us. He said, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, listen, into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. He came to give you life and that more abundantly. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. That, word, that, that idea of baptism means that you were crucified with Christ 
It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. In the life that you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for you. That is how we live now. It is not simply we dunk ourselves in water and now we're, we're, we have the promises of God. No. No, no, you put on Christ. You know, that's an active role. You participate in that when you choose to walk in the Spirit and not walk in the flesh. That is not passive to put on Christ. It's not passive. It's a choice that you make on a daily basis. Am I going to put Christ on today? Am I going to walk in this robe of righteousness? Yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, God has uh, made payment for my sin. But how will I choose to live my life? Will I walk in the righteousness that Christ has given me? That's your choice. And it means you have to put him on in order to do it. And we ought to do that because Paul said it is the way that we battle sin. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you're struggling, listen, the problem is you're not getting properly clothed. You've got to put on Christ. You have to put him on. What does that mean? Well, Jesus said, hey, you, you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross. That's what you have to do. That's what it means to put on Christ, to walk in his path, to not stir right to, to the left, to not deter from his, from his leading and guiding. He goes on here, and he tells us that in the reality of what Christ has done for us brings unity. Not disunity, but notice it has nothing to do with nationality. He said there are neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. You are all what? One in Christ Jesus. That means you are one. That means we are unified. There is no elevation of man here in this at all. The only person elevated in this picture is Jesus. He is the one. He brings us all together. He's the one that you know, causes us to um, you know, become one together, that we can represent him. We are his body, many members but we are one in him. And so, contrary to the Jews who thought that they were saved because they were Jewish, Paul says, no, not so. The only way that you can be saved is to be in Christ. He's the unifier. It has nothing to do with your nationality. He goes on and he ends this. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're his seed heirs according to the promise. You know what, Corinthians uh, 1, I think it's 120, says, I know what it says, but I'm going to read it. It says this, for all the promises of God, find their yes in Him. For all the promises of God, find their yes in Him, in Jesus. Listen, the, 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 the riches that you are going to obtain as a result of believing in Christ are not just Abraham's promises, but all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Listen, the promises of God are real, folks. And God gave them uh, in, in light of who you are. He, he was thinking of you when he promised these things. He, he, when he told Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, he was thinking of you. But when, he, when, he, when he gave all the promises that he gave throughout the Bible, he was thinking of you personal because he is a personal God and he loves you. And he wants you to receive the glorious riches of Christ. And honestly, they come as a result of a knock on the door. Jesus said, I stand and I knock. And if anybody opens up the door, I will, I will come in and I will dine with him. I will sup with him. I will commune with him. I will become his sacrifice. Listen, it is true. Somebody has come to your door. Somebody has knocked. Somebody has said, there is an inheritance waiting for you. All you have to do is believe. And listen, if you've moved past that in your walk with the Lord and you are, you know, in, in some weird place, because that happens to us the longer we walk with the Lord, we start developing these weird things. Get back to the basics. Drop the, you know, the sophisticated, you know, search of whatever it is that you're searching for and come back to the simplicity of the gospel, which is simply to sit at Jesus' feet and allow him to form you and make you more like him. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for 
the inheritance that we've been given and the means by which we've been given it through Jesus Christ. Lord, you are so good to us. Lord, we can't complain about a single thing here today, God, because you have done it all for us. We are passive in this thing called salvation, Lord, and we uh, want to thank you for it, and we thank you for extending your hand of grace to us today. Lord, we want to just, it would, I would be amiss if I didn't ask, Lord, if there was anyone here this morning that needed a relationship with you, whether it be online or listening to this later, God, we know that you are the one that knocks at the heart. You're knocking, and if you're knocking, we sense it. And you don't knock for just, you know, you, you don't ring the doorbell and ditch it the door. You're standing there waiting for the door to be opened because you want to come inside. And so, Lord, we, we pray that if there's any conviction in the heart of anyone in this place today, that you help them today to let you in, to just confess, Lord, I'm a sinner. Man, I totally blew it as it relates to your standard. But I thank you for Jesus, that he satisfied that standard for me. And not only that, he died, paid the price for my sin. He rose again from the dead victorious to give me life. And I'm putting all my faith in him this morning and I'm believing upon him. Help me, Lord, to put him on daily that I might walk in that newness of life that I'm called to. Just make me a Christian. And Lord, that's the prayer. A simple, sincere heart asking you, Lord, to do the work that only you can do. We thank you in advance, Lord, for doing that in our hearts. And we pray for all the saints in this place today, God, that you would move in the heart of every person, that you would draw us back to that simplicity of the gospel, recognizing that we died and that it's Christ who lives in us now. The life that we now live is we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. Lord, strengthen us in the gospel Strengthen us in our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.